this podcast, Michael Temer, head of data science at Uber ATG, talks about building an AI team. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us Michael Temer. Uh, so Mike serves as head of data science at Uber ATG. Uh, UC Berkeley Data Science Faculty and Head of Phronesis ML Labs. He has led teams of data scientists in the Bay Area as Chief Data Scientist for uh, Intertrust and TACT, Director of Data Science for Metascale at Sears and CSO for Galvanize, where he founded um, the Galvanize U, so University UNH accredited Master of Science in Data Science degree and oversaw the company's transformation from co-working space to data science organization. Mike's most recent passion in research has involved applying machine learning techniques to help combat fake fake news through fakerfact.org project. So Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thank you, Vishal. So why don't we start with your journey? Like what brought you to here? Uh, If you can just walk us through your background and what brought you to AI. Yeah, my, uh, my my background would suggest that I got here by accident. <laughs> I uh, I uh, was a, I, I, I was a uh, from for graduate school. I did a multidisciplinary degree, philosophy of physics, in particular mathematical physics. Uh, I, I spent time in the math department and the physics department, but was paid by philosophers. Um, so uh, the uh, you know this is I guess evidence you can. You can get a good job if you get a philosophy degree. Um, the when I when I was coming out uh, graduating, you know, I, I had done a lot of work in in simulation and in um, you know learning to code and using machine learning in order to um, to execute on some of the research that I was doing. And uh, so I, I ended up I ended up getting connected with people that needed what now would be called data science skills, uh, and uh, and was invited eventually to the Bay Area for Metascale. Interesting. And and um, let's talk about your current role. So what, what do you do now? Yeah. So currently I oversee the data science teams at Uber ATG. Um, so the, the, um, that's the, that's the part of the, uh, the part of um, Uber that, that uh, does the self-driving. I'm also a faculty for the, um, the MSDS program for the, uh, the School of Information at Berkeley. So we uh, we teach uh, my my course is uh, is machine learning at scale how to do distributed machine learning primarily in Spark nowadays um, and I also uh, have a have a research lab for research ML. Interesting. So um, let's talk about the state of AI. So like so if if um, from your pers- from your vantage point whatever you are seeing uh, from other industries what do you think uh, businesses get wrong about AI, or what do you think uh, that businesses should need to know about AI? What do businesses get wrong with AI? Um, well, so so and this is the the, the name has changed uh, over the years. The um, the the ultimate the, the ultimate practice has, has while it's evolved and technology has gotten better, has been basically the same. You know, um, first businesses are. Taking a lot of advantage in monetizing big data, and then they're taking a lot of advantage in monetizing data science. Science. The the latest hashtag has been more uh, AI, artificial intelligence. 
um, I, I don't really think that the, um, the core uh, purpose of, of the job working with this, making, uh, making, enabling a business to monetize their data through automation and machine learning has changed, um, though the topic hashtag has changed. Um, something else that's changed and has, has changed for the better over the last couple of years are, are really two pieces. Um, number one, the distributed uh, scalable machine learning tools that are out there um, have gotten better and better. Um, Hadoop uh, was replaced by Spark uh, for a lot of the in-memory and computational and CL uh, jobs for doing uh, large-scale and large-scale distributed ML is, uh, is most uh, um, best executed in, in Spark now. Um, and I guess it's kind of taken the back seat mostly for, um, for storage and retrieval type tasks. Um, and most importantly is the rise of deep learning for industry. Uh, when I, when I first started, if, if I said, let's build a neural net, I would be told to hey, go back to academia and research something. Um, now if I'm not, if I'm not at least considering, uh, deep learning solutions as part of the, um, the overall uh, algorithmic approach to solving problems. I'm probably not doing my job. Interesting, and and I think one thing that that was really jumped out in your background uh, was that you have experience in managing teams uh, in data science space, and then we are, we are seeing constantly emergence of data science team in in this business verticals. Uh, so, from your vantage point, how much do you think if I'm if I'm running a data science team, I should focus on machine learning and AI as a solution, like what, what, how much, what, what should be my maturity or uh, when I think, okay, I should, I could, cons I should consider getting into AI and how it could impact the business. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Um, every organization is different. And so um, while there are many, many ways to go wrong, there are also many ways to go right. Uh, in general, a couple principles that are, that are important. Um, I would hire, hire, um, hire team members that are not going to be um, just uh, working on prototypes. Uh, you know, working close to production code is one of the things, that, one of the key steps to, you, you asked earlier, what what can go wrong with um, AI, and, and that's one of the things that can go wrong. Um, also, having a diversity of skills. Uh, often, you need um, you need quite a bit of data engineering skills. Uh, if you're a startup, hiring the data engineers early on uh, as as a chief data scientist and and keeping that vision, but having the data engineering work come into play before maybe you do some of the more advanced algorithms is often a better strategy than hiring a bunch of data scientists without having the data um, extraction capabilities. Obviously having uh, uh, people who are adept at both of those skill sets is, is fantastic, but sometimes that's hard to do. Um, something else that, that I think is uh, you know, just on the topic of what can go wrong in, in um, when you do get to the point of you, you, you've got your data available, you've got a, a potential monetization strategy or use case for where machine learning really could be effective. Um, what, I, what, I, what I've seen, you know, either, uh, you know, advising companies, working with several startups, um, there, there is a point where, uh, where you can lose your nerve when you're building a machine learning product. Um, and what I mean by that is, 
uh, time and again, you, you hear in, in conferences uh, of people who invested all this money in, uh, in AI researchers or, or data scientists, and then they will get into the value. Um, and often what happens there is that the, um, you're not prepared for the fact that the first time you build it, it's probably not going to work so well. Mm. Right? Uh, whenever, I, whenever I talk to students or I talk to researchers in my lab or, um, or we have a coaching a, a, new, a, new, um, a new data scientist, a new machine learning uh, engineer, um, when, we, when we do that first, um, that first prototype, when we build that first application, uh, I, I have to give my, my little uh, pep talk that, hey, be prepared that it's not going to work the way we want. Um, the real you know, the real value of a quality data scientist and machine learning engineer is going to be in not picking the right algorithm for the first shot or even uh, good coding for, um, for that prototype, but being able to really understand what it is they're trying to do, how, um, how it can break and the dynamics of where that is, what's going on underneath, not just calling second learn libraries or ML uh, libraries. And then being able to adapt and adjust and learn from ex the experimental process as you build, um, as you find the right algorithmic fit for whatever the problem you have is. Interesting. And I think um, I, I remember that a um, couple of years back when data science was the keyword of the of the time, every business yeah. was holding on to the, the, the data science resources, right? They were trying to build up teams and... And I think you have a valid point when say when when the data is not available, uh, it's it's pretty useless to get folks involved with. And and at that point, I, I remember like getting into a lot of conversations where businesses have not figured out the identical the not, have not identified the use cases of where they could use these guys, but they hold it on to the, those guys, and it 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 ended up a lot of frustration and back and forth and sort of getting these things going like it, it lots of turmoil. And now we are saying the same thing with AI nowadays. Like I'm, I'm uh, surprisingly, uh, I find myself into more of these conversations than I would have loved to, in which they have hired and they have now they are trying to figure out where AI could be useful. So, from your vantage point, is there any any sort of um, qualifier metric that I should keep an eye on when I say, okay, I I may need to beef up my machine learning resources or AI resources. So, so, so uh, maybe, um, it, it, and correct me if, I, if I'm getting your question wrong, is it, um, when do you know it's time to invest more in your ML resources? Yes. Is that, is, um, it's a good question. Uh, certainly having the data, there is a, a big data used to get a lot of play, the, um, the ability for a startup to work with small data, and usually most startups have that cold start problem, is probably equally valuable of a skill set, um, and maybe makes it even more difficult, right? Um, there are all these famous charts uh, that you can invest in data or you can invest in data scientists because actually you need the data scientists mm -hmm. to make uh, make better use of the smaller data. Um, the I, I think that there's another there's another train of thought here, um, which is you, you mentioned how do you um, uh, how do you know when it, when it's the right time to monetize mm -hmm. um, and, and what are the right use cases to monetize? And that's a really important skill, skill a really valuable skill. Um, there's a lot of fresh uh, data scientists out there. Um, every university in the world has now come up with a master's program, and we're seeing the surge of, of, of rich, fresh talent without maybe as much experience um, out there. Uh, times were that if anybody who even wrote data science 
exist on their LinkedIn profile was a high commodity because it was so rare. Now, what's really rare is someone with the experience to know uh, um, not just the art of the possible for machine learning. I think a fresh, a fresh graduate um, who's been well trained, and there are a lot of really brilliant people coming out right now that that uh, have that that understand the possible, but understanding where the use cases are, what is a good scalable solution for machine learning, and what's not a scalable solution for machine learning um, is is really important. And that's where um, picking the right uh, the right leadership for your data science team becomes uh, critical. Uh, so uh, you know, th there there are several examples that, that we can talk about. Uh, with this. I think maybe the uh, the Fakerfact project that we did um, starting in my lab, uh, um, you know, last year might be a good example of how just with a with with a slight tweak of understanding what it is you're trying to solve, you can go from completely intractable problem to um, to fully um, you know to problem that. Uh, is really perfectly designed for the kind of machine learning technology that we have today. Interesting. Uh, I think so. The the other side of 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 this is any sort of um, anyone who's listening to this podcast and 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 who wants to sort of who is considering joining a company or at least identifying a company that's right fit um, for for their AI ventures. So. What are some of the qualifiers that you, as a candidate, would think of when you when you when you evaluate a company or a job role? That hey, this is this is a very progressive. It it could sort of give me that leeway to learn and sort of create this. Um, it's a very futuristic. So, what are some of the things that you had considered in your uh, uh, consideration for job roles, if at all? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So what should somebody consider when they're when they're vetting the company or the, the potential opportunities? Yeah. Um, certainly, certainly the, uh, the the leader of the of the data science organization is going to be critical because that's going to be the person who is helping to drive and shape what you work on. And um, and if that person has the um, the experience and the and and the knowledge for how to find a problem that uh, and and orient a problem towards something that's tractable versus something that's not tractable for data science. Um, that's going to make all the difference between whether or not you end up doing fulfilling work or you end up maybe supplementing for engineers that are needed all over the place. Also, um, I, you know, certainly there are there are different kinds of um, you know companies. Some some of them are um, you know, died in the wool, born in um, in data, and some are more uh, you know more more fringe, right? There's always a, a there's always a slew of different um, that data and machine learning projects you can do for different kinds of companies. If you have customers, you automatically uh, have the laundry list of um, you know uh, uh, customer uh, uh, customer retention, churn modeling, um, looking at looking at recommendations. Uh, looking at, uh, at, at um, how to bring on new customers, marketing, uh, all of those things kind of naturally happen for no matter what you're selling, whether it's toothbrushes or, um, or, or, soft or software. Um, for B2B, there, there's a whole other set of things that naturally have to happen. I think it's fair to say that most companies can use machine learning when done appropriately. Uh, the biggest challenge is finding the right team to execute on that. 
Interesting. And I think, so um, you talked about faker facts. So what exactly is that? If you can, if you can walk us through that. Sure. Yeah. So, so faker fact, um, that's a faker, uh, with, with, uh, with an ER, uh, fact is the, um, so, so this is a project that we started thinking about, um, you know, about a year ago where, uh, you know, fake news has been uh, this big problem. Uh, many of the major players are, are really uh, struggling with how to solve this problem. Um, and one of the, one of the things that, that kind of jumped out to me when, when we first started thinking about this was, um, a lot of the discussion centered around how do you detect what's true and what's not true? How do you detect when an article is doing something that's, uh, is saying something that's false, mm. um, or saying something that's true? And that's a really difficult problem to solve when you're um, with algorithms. It's a very difficult problem to solve in general, uh, but it takes a lot of, that's what real journalists are for, is for going out, getting all that data that you need in order to make a case that this is true, this is false, and then sharing that information with the right people, with the audience, so that they can make their, up their mind that, that, hey, this sounds true, this sounds false. Um, and being able to, being able to, have the evidence for that conclusion is the is the role of journalists and the role of fact checkers, mm. but that's really not scalable. Fact checking is not a scalable algorithmic process. However, and I mentioned earlier, um, there's this, this you know this subtlety of um, having a problem that is tractable and solvable with machine learning, and 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 having one that's not. Um, while truth detection may not at least start be a tractable problem. Um, there are things that are very tractable to solve in this problem. And one of them is when you think about what, um, what would fake news, why would somebody write fake news? Why would somebody propagate that kind of misinformation? Um, and usually it's because there's an agenda. There's a, they're, they're trying to get a goal and that goal is whatever it is, not identical to sharing information, increasing knowledge of the world with their audience. Maybe it's to sell something. Maybe it's to, um, to, to motivate a certain action, uh, maybe it's to, uh, to create a base or a following of some sort. Um, but it, you know, each of these different kinds of motivations, maybe it's just to, to make you laugh, like the onion, mm-hmm. right? Technically, satire is also fake. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so each of these different kinds of, quote, fake news, each of these different kinds of motivations, um, while knowing exactly what facts are true or what facts are not true in the writing might be very difficult. What's not as difficult is detecting what kind of writing style they're using, what kind of um, turns of phrases, what kind of um, aggregate patterns you tend to see in the article. So now you can, if you, you know, with the, and this is by no means trivial, but it is something that we can conquer with modern uh, natural language understanding and deep learning algorithms that are out there. You can talk about some of them in a moment. Um, you can build up the kind of algorithm so that your AI, so to speak, will read through the article, look at the words on the page, see and detect when those patterns are there, and then be able to come up with a, um, a classification. This sounds like journalism. This sounds like satire. This sounds like manipulation. This sounds like um, like, like an opinion piece rather than a, uh, than, than a fact-based piece. This sounds like a Wikipedia article. Um, and so what we ended up doing was just, you know, sort of validating this hypothesis that I had that you can build that. Uh, and, and we, uh, we spent, you know, several months 
scraping data examples of all the different these different paradigms for um, for how you could be journalistic, how you could be Wikipedia, how you could be manipulative, um, and then building classifiers to detect that. Um, and that's what fakerfact.org really grew out of that with uh, that that idea with first with a research project. And then comes the next really big hurdle, which is how do you turn um, an algorithm that you might be able to publish on into something that the world can use. Um, and, and so the website is sort of, uh, and then there's a Chrome app, there's a uh, Mozilla app. It's really a, a manifestation of how you can make that transformation from something that's just a technology to something that uh, is a product. Interesting. So um, exciting. So when you think about, say, let's let's solve the fake news problem. So Let's let's take the life cycle of that project, right? From very inception of hey, it's a problem. Let's solve it. If you can walk us through the the designing process and sort of at the stages that that it, it sort of incepted on, that will be really amazing. Uh, yeah. So um, so yeah, you know, we kind of we kind of left off with idea. Now we have to think about well, how do you turn this into um, you know in order in order to create a a product or a tool for um, for the public to use, how do you how, how do you how do you know how to get started? Right, mm -hmm. there are uh, you know literally an infinite way of uh, a, 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 a span of different things you can do with machine learning in order to solve this problem. Um, starting small is always good, and even though there are all these fantastic and beautiful um, and easy to use now uh, deep learning algorithms out there, uh, you know we did not start with that. We started mm -hmm. with validating the hypothesis that there even is this signal there. We started with some of the simplest algorithms that we could think of, uh, implemented those, saw if we got signal, tweaked it, and went through this really very scientific process of, well, um, it looks like we're getting these results. It looks like we're getting um, you know, more false positives, more false negatives. It looks like we're missing this signal. We're, we're, we're capturing that signal. And then slowly but surely, incrementing the sophistication of the algorithm mm -hmm. until you get to the results you want. What are some of the things we did? Well, um, there are all sorts of ways you can embed text. Uh, one of the ways is you can just take individual words and take like the average of those words by embedding them and look for, uh, you know, this is, this is a naive document sector. Um, so using uh, now, now a pretty popular um, and pretty well-known algorithm of WordTabec, um, this is a way of embedding individual words in a vector space so the algorithm can actually understand the mathematical representation of your words. Um, so you could do things, and this is something that we did, you know, five, uh, five six years ago when, when the algorithms first came out. Um, just take the average of all the words on the, on the page. Uh, and that's pretty good. It, it captures some of the, um, some of the, of, of, of the response because now you have an, a vector that represents the average uh, direction that all the different words um, are, are pointing in. And you can actually run that through a classifier, and the classifier that makes a decision, journalism, not journalism. Mm. Uh, the problem is that, you know, averaging is communicative. So word order doesn't matter. Context uh, doesn't matter as much. So then we might try um, different, you know, document embedding, or do document embedding ones that look for how do you mathematically represent the entire document as an extra context vector. Mm. Um, from there, we moved on to really more modern techniques using uh, long short-term memory algorithms in order to read each word individually and come up with an embedding for the entire sentence uh, using um, using uh, uh, different uh, loops in order to 
start doing that from you know taking sentences and moving them into um, moving them into paragraphs, taking paragraphs and turning them into an entire article, using attention mechanisms and the whole host of different like language modeling and, and all the different NLU techniques that we have uh, that, that we have the benefit of using today in 2018. Um, what was important about that is that we did not build the, um, the, the, the most sophisticated, most degrees of freedom, uh, most complex things first. We had to learn what kind of signal can each of these techniques get, at which point in the model can they get them, how do you manage the compression and the re-representation of the information from the words on the play page so that the algorithm can catch the grooves and the data in the best way possible, and then turn that into something that, um, something that, that actually gets good signal. Interesting. And, and so, so how, how did you end up, um, what are the accuracies that you ended up achieving after, after sort of your, the site is in progress? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So uh, the, the accuracies are, are remarkably um, uh, encouraging. <laughs> uh, journalism is in, the, is in the mid to high 90s in most, of the, mo- most cases, uh, most mm-hmm. data sets. Uh, and, and uh, you know, like I said, we do hypotheses all the time. Um, at, at any point in time, somebody on the research team is trying something new, puts it up there, we check it, we see, you know, first we um, check the offline measures where we get like these high 90s. And there, there's also, and this is something else where um, for recommendations, um, for all sorts of different um, examples when you're building a machine learning product, your offline metrics are important. Understanding the gap between performance offline and performance online is also important. Um, to give an example of that, uh, like I mentioned recommendations, um, we can come up with a recommendation algorithm for what movie you like, what movie you're going to rate most highly. Right? Famously, Netflix did that for the Netflix Prize. Uh, but also famously, it wasn't as, um, as valuable as they thought because um, recommendations are the sort of thing that implicitly have these, these response um, effects, right? So you make a recommendation to somebody and then they're going to react to that recommendation. Um, so trying to predict how many stars someone's going to give a movie is good, but trying to predict what those second and third order effects are once you've shown someone something, what happens when they respond to that? Those are things that are hard to simulate, um, hard to do uh, offline. Um, you know, one of the ways you might do, you, you might, you might, you might attack that problem is by simulating what would happen in the real world. And more and more, for offline measures, you're getting more sophisticated um, ways of detecting that offline simulation in order to get close to bridge the gap between offline performance and, and estimating what the offline performance is going to be like and online performance. It's also an investment, though. Now you are not, you're not just in the business of bottling. Um, what the data is like, but you're also modeling what the world, how the world is going to respond to uh, what the data is like. So you kind of doubled your work. Um, experimentation, live experimentation, when you can afford it, is, mm-hmm. uh, is another way of doing it. Interesting. And um, I think, so we, we also read a lot that even journalism is moving towards AI. They use leveraging AI to write authentic uh, facts, fact-based news. So how do you so if if you are if you are relying on linguistic patterns to figure out if it's written by journalistic 
um, or, or or if it is written by, by an AI bot, will that make uh, a life of a uh, fact checker a lot harder? If, if, if that's an AI, because AI is writing it and then AI is, they're, both, they're just mirroring each other out. Um, so so, so uh, maybe maybe um, you can correct my interpretation of your question. Um, uh, and, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, sometimes people respond uh, to it and say, well, w won't people just learn how to, how to slip one past the goalie, right. um, so to speak? Um, so we, we named, uh, we named the, the Faker Fact AI Waltz after Walter Cronkite. Um, and, and so, uh, so, so, so maybe, maybe Waltz, we can trick Waltz. Maybe that's mm -hmm. actually, it's like SEO hacking for Google. And in the, in the old days, you, you would do all sorts of things to your website to yeah. trick the algorithm to put you higher. What if, what if all the fake news people out there, all the fake news authors just use, uh, use, try to use Waltz for evil? They try to use it as a, mechanism for figuring out if they can um if, if they if they can be slipped by undetected um mm -hmm. as as real news even though they're fake facts right they're, they're alternative facts um and my response there is that actually that would be the dream that's the goal if, if that's one thing that that uh, putting a, a website like this out or an, a google app a chrome app uh, out into the public uh, does that would be fantastic um, and the reason for that is that um, we're all human, hmm. um, at least so far, right? <laughs> not counting wall. Um, and because we're all human, we evolved in um, in a certain way that that really made a lot of sense when when in, when we were cave people. Um, you know, when we were as we were evolving, we actually learned, um, or we, we uh, it ended up being an adaptation. To not always overthink things, hmm. in particular when there's danger around, or when there's um, when, when there's something that makes us angry or makes us um, threatened or makes us scared, um, we end up. It's actually better for us to not overthink it, to turn off our brains, and to just respond. Often that response is running away or becoming belligerent back. Um, now. Well, this was a great advantage when it came to um, figuring out how to, hang, how, how to handle tigers in the jungle mm. um, or how to respond to snakes in the forest. Maybe it's a snake, maybe it's not. Better, not to, <laughs> better to err on the side of caution. It ends up being exactly the sort of thing that um, manipulative fake news can take advantage of. Mm. And because it could take advantage of that, um, it can actually... You know, there are part of these techniques that that um, that these patterns that that the fake news that that Walt can detect is when that's starting to be triggered. And so, um, your question was, well, what if what if somebody slips one by the goalie by removing these very techniques? Mm. Well, then we've done a remarkable thing because we forced fake news propagators to take out the things that are that 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 are. Um, force, that, that, that are um, manipulating us into not thinking about what we read. And if what we've done is created a way for people to know, to, to think about the facts, uh, you know, cognitively, to, ration, to reason about their, what they're reading, whether it's true facts or whether it's maybe not true information, um, and then come to their own decision about, about the truth, that's a, that's a beautiful result, isn't it? Yeah, I think that, 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 that makes sense. 
so um that's that's remarkable so so i think so what you're suggesting is if you need to get to an ai a project uh, first do the research get all the data in place and then um, i think use very simplistic model to just see if it's fruiting your results and then then sort of keep iterating to see it in fruition is, is it correct interpretation that's right yeah and um i you know i i answered earlier that that there's this um you know this having the nerve to push it all the way through until you get the the monetization result you want uh you know believe me there's a lot of hypotheses that we've tried that actually didn't improve the model that mm -hmm. made it go down not up and when you see that that happens as long as you've approached it from a well calibrated, um, you know, well, you know, well managed expectations way, where mm. you say we're going to try this, we're going to learn from if it doesn't work or if it does work, and for every different hypothesis you take, you really make max, you take maximum advantage of whether it works well or whether it doesn't, um, and you have the leadership, whether it's in a business context or with the senior leadership executives, maybe they're machine learning experts, maybe they're not. Or is it just a research project that you're doing on your own because you're getting ready to enter the workforce? Um, making sure that everything you try has a well-soaked value, whether you're whether whether it, whether it improves the score or whether it doesn't improve the score, you understand what you did underneath, and you can learn from that result. Is one of the ways you can get around this hump of oh, well, we didn't prove value because no matter what you did, you learned from what you from what you built. Um, and so this is really a, an agile data science methodology the original the, the original concept of agile development was not mm. um create an mvp and get it out there or first thing that can make you money it was what's the minimum thing that you can do in order to learn if it makes the product better or worse interesting that out there interesting and and um if i'm a business and i'm trying to look for a good leader um, in my organizations to lead my data science initiatives what are some of the things you could suggest me uh, that I, sh I I could look for in a, in, 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 in the talent? Um, well, I would look for somebody who likes to build. There are all sorts of soft skills, there are all sorts of management skills and um, important techniques for a leader to have that are have nothing to do with machine learning, that are sort of universal across all good managers and all good leaders. Um, in particular, uh, and, and this, this is true in many technical management cases, having somebody who understands what the team is building, who can set the direction, who can also know that subtle distinction between what's a tractable ML problem and what's an intractable ML problem, uh, like the example we talked about uh, a little while ago, um, you really need the technical chops in order to, in order to be able to do that. Um, now that's not the only thing, uh, but that's that's an important thing, and and uh, also having the technical chops so that you can guide a team to um, being able to break down the different hypotheses that they're going to test, the different tweaks to an algorithm that might make it better, might make it worse, and also importantly, know when to stop. When have you met the right level of uh, of accuracy, the right level of performance um, that the business needs, so that you're not um, investing all of your time chasing smaller and smaller return for more and more effort. Interesting. And if suppose um, you end up joining a company and trying, and you are given this task to put together a rockstar data science team, what are some of the first few considerations that you would do? Or what are some of the steps or you would take to get started on that journey? 
Well, understanding the business is probably the first thing that <laughs> that, that you need to do whenever you join the, the company. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's another cliche of um, doing fancy technology things for its own sake because that's mm. what um, that's what you're good at. So we'll just uh, we'll just find a nail for our hammer, so to speak, right? Um, that that can often um, have bad results. And, and this cliche of people investing in, in data scientists or machine learning engineering talent that's very expensive and not getting a return um, can be the, the consequence, can be the result of um, maybe not having a good understanding of what the business goals are and then working from that to figuring out what needs solutions and then specifically what can be solved with, um, with these uh, machine learning solutions or with statistical solutions or making le- leveraging the data solutions. Um, so understanding the businesses the most important thing. Um, depending on where you're coming in the maturity of the team, understanding the different skills that the uh, that the that your team members have is really important. So getting to know the members of your team, getting to know what they're good at, what they're not good at, what they enjoy doing, what they don't enjoy doing, um, and then writing a, out a roadmap for how you uh, fill in the gap and make sure that you have a fully well-rounded uh, team is going to be really important too. Interesting. And and from your experience, like what are some of the challenges that you have faced uh, putting together a data science team in in, in in a startup or within a company? Yeah, uh, hiring quickly is hard for everybody. It doesn't matter what company you're at or or um, or, or, or who you are. Uh, it, it, it's hard to find the right talent. It was hard uh, historically to find any talent at all. Um, and it's still hard to find people with the right kind of experience and the right kind of intuition or uh, second nature that they've developed uh, through practice that, uh, for, for, for what the sort of um, the sort of understanding that I just described. Um, there's not a there, you know there's no replacement for practice. Um, and while some people it might come more quickly than others, uh, a lot of the uh, the very abstract and not specific uh, uh, examples that I've just been giving about understanding the difference between a tractable problem and a non-tractable problem, understanding how to um, how to frame hypotheses so that you learn no matter what when you make a change to your algorithm, understanding we haven't talked at all yet about how you um, bring an algorithm that is that works on your laptop to something that works on uh, or maybe in a cloud cluster that you've created to something that works as a product and serving environment. Uh, those are all different things that if, that if you haven't had the practice for, and most people have not had the practice, almost certainly have not had the practice, uh, sufficient practice coming out of the gate, um, you need to develop that skills. And there's no replacement. There's there's no replacement from for time spent uh, on that. Interesting. I think so. One thing that uh, uh, I I get sort of um, surprised a lot by like almost every company is flooded with IT professionals. So they have oh, like most of these companies have been hiring with a lot of these IT folks. I remember one of the Fortune 20 company I was recently in conversation with, and and they said, hey Vishal, I'm looking for an interesting, um, I think uh, computer vision engineer. I said okay, mm-hmm. and he said, hey, uh, and he said, have you tried looking inside the organization? He said, no, my my folks are pretty pri- primarily IT folks, so and they have been looking for that guy for at least now a couple of uh probably two years now they have interviewed few and not getting whoever want they want to hire so i think one thing that we are seeing is that almost every company is very with a lot of people but they don't 
they don't retrain them fast enough to get to this this new because if if you see from IT to data to AI, it's not a very far jump. So, what is your thought around um, around this this uh, this this idea of retooling the workforce to get to the the talent that you would probably need in the future? Yeah. Um, so this is a, this is something that I thought about quite a bit. Um, you, know, you mentioned that you know I, I spent several years uh, building out the Galvanize program for um, for training, um, and this was in the days that you know um, Galvanize U was one of the first master's programs out there, uh, and and so we came up with uh, shorter term solutions like immersive programs or corporate um, training programs that were really focused on not. Create giving you all the tools that you need in order to be um, you know, to be a, a full fledged uh, data scientist ready to handle any task, but giving specific skills, um, allowing people that had one set of skills and allowing them to enabling them to transfer those overs to uh, to other contexts. Um, that's really valuable. Uh, there are some things that there's no replacement for. Um, I would say you know. Um, you know, if, you, if you're an engineer and you, you are a good engineer, you know how to uh, build well abstract the right level of abstraction. You know how to, um, to to build in the right sort of modules and testing into your into your code. That's going to get you a long way. And my recommendation would be to focus on training um, opportunities that really give you an understanding, not just of how to how to call um, different libraries and blindly execute. But how to um, how to really understand the math behind what's doing, what's going on? How to understand the uh, the information theoretic um, underpinning of what your algorithm is doing and why it's doing that? Uh, the representation in different vector spaces as you go from um, from information in, in in its raw form like text to the, to uh, well compressed vectorized form like the example I gave with uh, with fake news detection. Um, getting those skills. Are, are are not nice to have. Mm. They're they're essential because otherwise, what's going to happen is you're going to call some libraries. You're going to hit a bump in the road. Maybe not the first time, but eventually, inevitably, um, and more often than not, the first time. And you're not going to know how to fix it. You're not going to be able to um, to actually solve the problem. Or you might solve the problem, but you're going to be solving the problem by randomly trying things. And now you're not making forward progress every time you make a change to your algorithm every time you develop a hypothesis, you only win one way when it goes mm. up and you lose all the other times. And there are more ways to go wrong than there are to go right, which means in general, you're going to make less progress. Uh, most of the time, you're not going to do the progress. On the flip side, if you have a very strong, say, mathematical literacy, uh, a background in physics or, or, or other sciences, but you don't have that um, that background uh, in in in, as a developer, then there's a whole another set of of of, um, of tools and of techniques that you should learn. Um, and these center around the sorts of things that I mentioned before. How do you build reproducible code? How do you um, make sure that you're testing everything? Because at some point, no matter who you are, um, someone else is going to be touching your code. Someone else is going to be breaking your code, uh, and that someone else could be you one month later when you forgot what you what you did uh, a few months ago. And so you need to build in these mechanisms, these best practices, so that you're not writing, rewriting the same code over and over again each time. You're not, um, you're not building something that is super fragile, so that way when you want to make a change, which inevitably is going to happen, 
um, you, you, you end up you end up breaking everything and spending all of your time in debug mode. Interesting. That's a that's a very interesting thought. So, um, if if we talk about um, some of your best hires that that you have uh, done in 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 your uh, profession, like what are what are some of the ingredients of your best hires that you could share? The ingredients of my sorry, I didn't catch the word. Your, your best hires. So, anyone that you hired, what are some of the things that um, that you look for? Well, uh, I actually look for um, for spikes in both of those of those different uh, polls. Um, I, I definitely look for people that um, have that that deep mathematical literacy, um, are very well adept at understanding, um, you know, what it is they are building. Um, but even if they, you know, maybe, maybe they don't have as much um, as much training in, in how to develop good code. Um, if you have a team that's nothing but that profile, you're going to fail. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, if you have a team, a data science team that's nothing but engineers who know how to call libraries but don't really know how to um, how to improve on their products once they once they call that first library, whether it works or doesn't, it's kind of like a coin flip. You're going to fail too. So, uh, you know, going back to where I said before, having a well-rounded, holistic team is always the best solution. Interesting. And and if and let's talk about. Um sandbox that suppose you are working um, as, a, as a data science leader and you were asked to put together an AI lab. So what are some of the things that you could share that I that um, that the, whoever is given this task should consider? Building an AI lab or, or, or an industry lab, so to speak. Um, well, I, I think the, the, the first question that I would have is um, what kind of time horizon you have for this lab? Um, you know the, the the funding and 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 when the expectation of of return is going to be because that's going to really characterize um, the nature of the projects that you try, right? Uh, a lab that is purely for research and purely for just figuring out new technologies that that may or may not the mandate is not to turn it into a product, but to to see if you come up with the next greatest thing. Um, well, that, those tend to move more slowly for obvious reasons. Uh, that's going to be a very different kind of lab than one that, um, while an R&D um, auspices, is still going to be expected to, to return value to the business in, in, in a shorter time frame. And so understanding what, that, you know, what the context is there is, is, is where my mind goes first. Right? Um, resources. So, um, you know, an important thing if you have, uh, if you have a lab is understanding, uh, not just the funding for hiring researchers, but also what kind of, um, what kind of compute resources do you have? Uh, if you, if you've got a limited amount, if they can only, if, uh, you know, people can only work on their laptop, researchers can only work on their laptop, uh, that's going to be a very different kind of game than, um, having, uh, an, an in-house cluster that you can use or having, um, you know, a certain volume of GPUs and, and instances in the cloud that you can use. Um, and so that's going to really characterize the nature of what kind of projects you take on. Interesting. Uh, last but so, not it's yeah, sorry. the research. Yeah. Sorry. That, I was just going to say the people matter too. <laughs> Interesting. No, I think that's that's fabulous. So um, uh, now we're at, at the tail end of the conversation, by the way. So I, in, in this, I want to spend somewhat more time about around your journey. So in, in your um, 
journey so far what are some of the tenets of your success like if if you say some of the qualities or some of the things that really helped you be what you are what would that be i've been really really lucky <laughs> <laughs> um i i think that there are uh, there are plenty of people that are joining um, the data science or machine learning community now uh, in the industry now that uh, are are just as qualified as I was as I was when I joined, uh, and there's even more I'm sure that are that are more qualified. Um, I I started at, at a very um, a rich time where this, these skills were not as uh, as, as available. And I was lucky enough to get to, to develop the skills and the experience that I didn't have when I joined. Um, when that ended up making, uh, you know, that enabled me to uh, stay a, a little bit ahead of the curve, so to speak, on what the expectations were for, for data scientists. Um, I, I, I think back, uh, you know, when I first left, uh, left academia and went to industry, uh, I kind of had this thought, man, I, I guess that's what I've learned for this life. If I'm done, uh, you know, I'm not going to have any chance to learn anything else because now I'm going to the workforce. And I, I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, almost, uh, almost none of the, uh, the actual technologies or the actual techniques that I was using when I left academia are things that I use today. Um, you know, maybe, yeah, so Python and R are still around and you know, I tend to use, uh, to use Python more. And, uh, you know, R was re is really more of an academic tool. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the math has not changed, obviously. Mm -hmm. the, the math is, is similar and having that firm foundation in uh, mathematical, um, literacy and, uh, in, in the, the development of practices, that's, that's fairly timeless. Um, but the specific techniques, the, the, using deep learning, using, um, you know, algorithms that, that are, are pretty much the staple in, um, in industry that are not deep learning, uh, things that you find in, um, in Spark ML or in, uh, in like XGBoost. None of that existed when I joined. Um, and so, um, none of, none of the techniques that I mentioned that we used for FakerFact, um, mm. were, were, um, none of the natural, natural language processing was, uh, almost a hundred percent a different kind of project, um, you know, when I joined. And so the fact that you, uh, you know, I'm constantly reading journals, reading new technology, and, and and not 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 even because it's it's something that I I I I think that I need to do or that I spend time so I could keep up. It happened naturally as part of doing the job. You just have to keep up with these process with these new techniques and uh, and and develop a very rich uh, um, rich opportunity to learn every single month. Beautiful and and. What are some of the favorite reads or some of the favorite books that you have read that you would like to share with our listeners and viewers? Yeah. Uh, so so um, er, er, earlier I mentioned uh, for, for education purposes, my, my, the one I always recommend is, is, the, is the new, the, the deep learning book, the NGO uh, book uh, that, that, that came out. It's free online. It has, even though it's a book about deep learning, uh, the first third um, is really about getting those fundamentals down. And so if you're just starting with statistics, probability, linear algebra, um, fundamentals of machine learning, uh, it's a great end-to-end -end, um, summary of exactly what you need. And now you're all ready to start reading about deep learning when you get, when, once you master those pieces. Um, fiction, I, I, uh, I, 
liked her. I liked her read all sorts of fiction. I, uh, I, st- I still, I still like Star Wars. Stories so <laughs> sometimes are fun. Um, I, you know, there's a book that uh, that came out uh, several years back now. Um, uh, Kevin Kelly, uh, so, so he's one of the the, the Wired uh, founders, um, called called What Technology Wants, uh, which I think about often still uh, still nowadays. Um, and, and the thesis there that, that, that Kevin Kelly talks about is that um, there's this phenomenon where um, where different technologies get invented by different people in different places who never had the chance to communicate. And there's all sorts of examples of this. He uses the example of Edison and the light bulb being one of the last people to invent the light bulb. Um, there's examples I used to wonder about, um, you know, uh, when, I, when I was young, I said, well, Robin Hood had the bow and arrow. But mm. but didn't, didn't the Native Americans have bows and arrows too? And didn't they have them before? Uh, you know, who invented the, the bow and arrow? Turns out the answer is both, right? Um, uh, the, the spoon and more uh, you know, more sophisticated technologies, of course, that's happening too. And nowadays with mm. the internet, uh, it's, it's a combination of both. People can come up with the same idea all over the place. Um, now, what does Kevin Kelly say about this? He says it's a lot like evolution. In evolution, the environment determine um, what kind of adaptations the organism end up evolving to um, to to, uh, to develop. Uh, and for technology, it's kind of like that. I don't necessarily uh, think that you would say that it's um, it, it's because of, of uh, uh, survival of the fittest type thing, although maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is there is this at least plausible thesis that once you once humanity has mastered electricity. And once humanity has mastered um, working with glass and the sorts of metals that go into making a light bulb, the invention of a light bulb is inevitable. Hmm. And Interesting. people are going to create that. As long as you have enough inventors out there, several of them are going to create that invention. And this is something that we see, we've seen throughout history. Calculus was invented by two different people. Um, and uh, we see this often with, uh, with algorithms today that I read about. Sometimes I'll read uh, in recommendations and in, in search relevance. Uh, the same people came up with almost the same algorithm in two different contexts and may or may not have actually been influenced by each other. That's that's pretty cool. So uh, when, well, uh, last but not the least, uh, so if you want our listeners and viewers to take away something from this conversation, so what would that be? So what would be your closing remark to our listeners and viewers? <laughs> um, that, uh, that, that's Tough to tough to say what what the best final words are going to be. I, I suppose um, I, I, I suppose I, I, I want to punctuate that uh, the importance of uh, this theme that I was pushing that when you're doing this development, uh, you, you always want to learn every time. Um, you know, having this style data science uh, approach to, to to building is is incredibly valuable and something that. Um, that really makes the difference between a successful team and an unsuccessful one. Beautiful. So with that, thank you so much, Mike, for for your, uh, uh, spending your time with us and sharing uh, your thoughts and your sort of uh, ideas on how some of the leaders should think about putting together an AI team and, and what are some of the good practices there. You're always welcome back on the podcast and wish you nothing but success. And thank you for spending time with us. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, thanks. Yeah.